We're in Mark chapter 13, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 13. So the Lord Jesus Christ is with his disciples, and this is what the scriptures say. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, See what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumours of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synag and in and in the synagogues. Ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be preached among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end the same shall be saved. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word also. We're told in this opening verse of our reading today that the Saviour left the temple and he left it never to return again to it. I think there's something significant here in this thought. The temple had been the house of God, literally. It is where God had promised to meet with his people. And the people of Israel went frequently every year at preset times, designated times, in order to worship God at the temple. And now 
it was abandoned by God. He would no longer honour it with his presence. The Lord Jesus, here taking leave of it, signified the end of its role and place and purpose for divine worship and sacrifice. The form of religion, the feasts, the rites, the sounds and the smells and the activity, the coming and the going, the feasts and the priests would all continue. But God would not be present anymore. And all their activities would be in vain. Vain religion. Because the Lord Jesus Christ had turned his back upon it. Let us not be confused into thinking that just because a person or a group of people or a whole church uses religious language, sings religious songs, makes prayers and reads the Bible and prays its history and its heritage, that that means in any way that it is a true church. Or indeed that the Lord will be found within it. Scripture tells us that they that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. That's what God says. Spirit and truth. These are those things that characterise the worship of God. If God the Holy Spirit is not present, there is no spiritual life and therefore no true worship. And if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not preached according to the scriptures, then there is no truth. And there is no spiritual worship. A form of godliness might well be there. The business of religion might well go on apace. The feasts and the priests might all continue. But God is not in it. The Lord Jesus Christ had turned his back upon it and he had left. There was no spirit and there was no truth within it. Furthermore, if the Lord is not in a church, then we should not be in that church either. And whatever justification we might want to give for being present in a Christless church, in a church where there is no spirit and in a church where there is no truth, then it is merely an excuse. Someone might say, well, I go for the companionship. And someone else might say, I go for the sake of the children. Or I go to keep it open 
because I'm hoping that there might be better days somewhere along the way. Or I'm trying to win them for the Lord. Or I can't find anywhere better to go. Those are all excuses that a believer with a passion for the gospel should not countenance. When the Lord left the temple, his disciples went with him. They didn't stick around hoping that he'd come back. We're also told that the Lord's disciples, as they were leaving the temple, were impressed by the stones and the architecture of the temple buildings. Now, these disciples had seen all this before. And, uh, and let's, um, let's not imagine that they are in awe or, or overwhelmed by a first glimpse of, of the, 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 the splendour of, of the temple buildings. I think rather what is happening here is that these disciples had recently heard the Lord Jesus Christ's comments about the temple's imminent destruction and its desolation. And I think what the disciples were referring to, or the one that spoke, I don't know which one it was, maybe Peter, but whoever it was that, that, that was the spokesman for them, I think that they were trying to reconcile the Lord's words about destruction and desolation with the splendour that they could see around about them and the energy and the, 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 the activity that all seemed to be there. And maybe they were a little bit incredulous that such massive stonework, that the masonry of the building could actually be destroyed. It's even possible that they were gently rebuking the Lord and hinting that, that something so beautiful as the temple needn't be destroyed, but it could be put to another use. So the disciples were curious to hear Jesus' thoughts on the matter. And what we discover is that the Lord was blunt and emphatic with them. He says, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now it might take some time. It was another 40 years before the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and literally hewed the temple to pieces. They destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. But Christless religion, with all its organisation, with all its structures, with all its fine buildings, with all its long heritage, will be thrown down. And there will not be one stone left upon another. In the book of Revelation, we're told about the whore or the harlot of Babylon. And that is a reference to Christless religion. A system of religious activity 
without a gospel. With a, with, with a gospel that is void of the offence of the cross. Because every religious organisation will say that it has a gospel. But this is a gospel in Babylon that is void of the offence of the cross. It's a faith that is founded on man's free will. It's a hope that's built on self-righteous accomplishments. It's a self-serving, man-honouring structure to the glory of humanity and indeed ultimately to the worship of man himself. When Christ leaves the building, its days are numbered and Babylon will fall. I want us to take a look at three things that the Lord taught his disciples in this passage about their apostolic ministry. Three things that would better equip them in their own testimony and better equip those who preach and teach and lead others. Now I know that the signs that the Lord was speaking about here were signs that applied to the period before the destruction of the temple, the, the disciples' own personal ministry. But we do the passage no wrong to apply it more broadly to the whole age of the church because we all have a need to take heed in every age to the things that the Lord here set before his disciples, the, the apostles. A false Christ and a false prophet lies at the heart of a false gospel. And there are many candidates for these titles throughout church history and in the present religion of our own day. So these three things, I think, will be useful uh, for us to give attendance to. And the first one is this, that the Lord says, beware of false Christs. Beware of false Christs. He said it to the disciples and he says it to us. Beware of false Christs. Here's a question. What does a false Christ look like? Well, it's nothing to do with sandals or a beard or a long coat. But it is all to do, it is everything to do with properly distinguishing the Christ that we worship. The Christ that we trust, the Christ that we preach, the Christ that we follow. It is understanding who he is and knowing when he's not present, when he is not in the teaching or the preaching or the worship. Every Christian preacher will say with the Apostle Paul, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't think there's a church that wouldn't say that in some way at some time. And yet the Lord tells us 
in Mark chapter 13, the same chapter that we're in, further down in the chapter, verse 22. False Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. Now I take that phrase from the Lord, I take that to mean that the false Christs and the false prophets are going to be so similar to the real Christ and the true prophets that they're almost indistinguishable. Even to the point of, if it were possible, deceiving the very elect of God. So again, I ask the question, what does a false Christ look like? Now, we don't have to speculate about this. Paul tells us how to know that we know the true Christ. The authority of the apostles was based on their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Christ. And the commission that they were given to go and preach the gospel testified to the fact that they knew the Christ and they knew the doctrine that they were preaching. The whole of Scripture speaks of the true Christ. And the New Testament expressly, specifically, discovers the Lord Jesus Christ to those who search the scriptures. John chapter 1 verse 10 says this. I'm going to read a few verses actually, 10 to 14. Christ, he was in the world. This is John telling us what to, what to see, what to think about with respect to the true Christ. He says this, he was in the world and the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came to his own, his own people, the Jews, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's how you know the true Christ. Peter, again, one of the Lord's disciples, one of those with authority and commission to teach and to preach and to lead men and women to a true and proper understanding of the true Christ, he writes this. He writes, for as we, that is the apostles, have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
And the Apostle Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he declares, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, the testimony of these apostles shows us the true Christ. And it can be distilled to this, that it is the testimony that these men left us in their writings according to the scriptures. So the point is this, that the true Christ, the Christ of the Bible, the Christ of scripture, is the one who is the true Christ. And if we would know about his person, and about his work, and about his accomplishments, about his offices, we shall find that information in the scriptures as it is preached faithfully to us. For he says, search the scriptures, for they testify of me. And it's not just Peter, John, and Paul. It was Moses and David and Isaiah and Job and Daniel and Jonah and Ezekiel and Malachi and all the prophets spoke of him. And we will find it in the testimony of the apostles who were instructed from his very lips, authorised by him, commissioned to take the message he gave to them and equipped by him. To what? To declare and to distinguish him from impostors. First John chapter 1 verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. This is what joins us with the apostles in our knowledge and understanding and, and uh, discrimination and distinguishing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And throughout the Gospels, we, we, we hear the Lord Jesus Christ saying to his disciples, Ye shall be my witnesses. And in the Acts of the Apostles, we hear those very uh, disciples saying, We are his witnesses. I asked, what does a false Christ look like? Well, a false Christ looks like anything. That is not the true Christ, not the Christ of Scripture, not true God and not true man, not omnipotent and omniscient, not sufficient and successful, not glorious and eternal, and especially not well-pleasing to the Father. A false Christ cannot give his people salvation. A false Christ merely offers them suggestions as to how they might gain salvation for themselves. The true Christ gives his people salvation. 
gives salvation to those for whom he died, those for whom he has secured their eternal deliverance, those whose salvation he obtained and glory he secured. There are many false Christs. Christ himself testifies of this. But there is only one true Christ. And in knowing him and in trusting him, your sins shall be forgiven. So here is the first lesson that the Lord taught the apostles. Beware of false Christs. The second lesson that he taught them was this. Take heed to recognise false doctrine. In the days of Peter and, and John and, and Paul, there was plenty of false doctrine around. And there were lots of false teachers. And throughout the epistles, we and the Acts of the Apostles, but, but the, especially the Epistles, we find the Apostles writing frequently in their letters to the young churches to be careful about the false doctrine that was permeating the teachings even as early as during the lifetimes of the Apostles themselves. And if that was true then, we might well imagine that Satan has had lots of time to smooth and to hone his message in the past 2,000 years. Now what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to read examples again from the Apostles' writings. But if you've got a pencil and you want to write down the following references, then you can read them for yourselves or look back at the, uh, at the, the, the uh, uh, sermon on, on another occasion. Second Peter chapter 2 is worth reading with respect to take heed about false doctrine. The little epistle of Jude towards the end of the New Testament Verses 3 to 16 will serve that purpose also. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, and all associated passages regarding Antichrist will teach us what to look for. We've already mentioned John's writings about Babylon. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. 2 John. Chapter, well, there is only one chapter, verse 7. First Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Second uh, Corinthians, chapter 11, verse three, 13 to 15. Let me just take a moment and read those verses to you. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. We're, uh, we're looking at the, uh, second, the little book to the Second Corinthians in the uh, Zoom services that we have uh, uh, midweek. But uh, we haven't got as far as this yet. But here's what he says in Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. 
and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as ministers, the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. False teachers teach a false Christ by misrepresenting Christ and misrepresenting the work of Christ. False teachers make salvation to be a work of man's free will. They make righteousness to be a cooperation between man and God. They make the precious blood of Christ to be ineffectual to cleanse and save except and until man agrees to it. And therefore, implicitly in that teaching, the blood of Christ is largely wasted and shed in vain. They make the work of Christ contingent and conditional for its success on themselves. They make the work of Christ largely to be a failure except for the few like them who in a sense save Christ from completely wasting his work and his blood by believing in him and therefore giving him some honour. False teachers, by their false doctrine, make themselves to be honourable and they diminish Christ's honour. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 says, They have trodden underfoot the Son of God. They have trodden underfoot the Son of God. They have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Well might the Lord Jesus Christ say to his disciples and well might his disciples say to us, Take heed, be careful about what you hear, about what you sit under, about what you listen to. There are many blind leaders of the blind and you will not be saved if you have not believed the truth. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? These false teachers preach a false Christ. So how can we believe in him of whom we have not heard? You cannot escape if you neglect so great salvation. And the great salvation they neglect is the free grace gospel that declares the sovereign salvation that is of the Lord.
The Old Testament prophets knew that salvation was of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets knew all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Old Testament prophets knew Christ and they knew the gospel of sovereign grace. And the New Testament apostles have preached that gospel to us. Let us take heed to receive what they have given us of the true Christ and the true gospel of Christ. For the time, says Paul, has come when they do not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So the Lord gave three admonitions, three valuable lessons to his disciples as he sat with them there. Peter, James, John and Andrew. He warned them about false Christs and he warned them to take heed of false doctrine. And the third thing he taught them was this. Understand the blessing of the Lord's care for his church. In the midst of the rising of the false Christs, in the world of religion awash with false doctrine, understand both the necessity for and the blessedness of the Lord's care and protection of his church. This point I'm gleaning from three remarks that the Lord made at the end of our verses today. And these three remarks are, are these. In verse 10 he said, And the gospel must first be published among the, all nations. The second one is in verse 11 where it says, It is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. And the third one is in verse 13 where it says, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now let us bring these three little phrases together and show the blessedness and the necessity of the Lord's care for his church. We know as the Lord's people, we know as the Lord's people, the truth of the gospel. We know the true Christ and we know what he has accomplished. And we know that God, our God, has an elect people whose salvation is assured by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We know that that salvation is sure and certain and that its timing is fixed. Therefore, we realise the necessity of God's providential control over all the affairs and all the circumstances of the world. For those people 
that are the Lord's to hear the gospel and believe the gospel, the circumstances of the gospel going to those people must be according to God's will. We understand not only does God have providential control over all things to accomplish the salvation of his people, but that it is the satisfaction of his sovereign will that is at stake. And that God himself and his sovereign will and purpose is that these things should be done. And we understand that God will accomplish his electing purpose through the preaching of the gospel. And his people shall endure to the end and his people shall be saved. Or as Paul puts it, and maybe I should have said this first because this is a beautiful summary of everything that I've just said in the past few minutes. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. The disciples were getting ready to commence upon their apostolic ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ would soon be slain. Uh, he, he, he would die. He would rise again and he would ascend into heaven. And then the apostolic ministry uh, would, would begin in, in, in force. During that time, would the well-being of the apostles be in jeopardy? Yes, certainly. Saul of Tarsus tried to extinguish and exterminate the young church. But he would not succeed because the gospel must be published amongst all nations. It was God's will to gather the elect people from amongst the nations. Would the apostles be able to withstand the power of their foes, their, their enemies? Yes, they would, because God the Holy Spirit himself would defend them. He would build a wall around them. He would advocate for them. He would give them the very words to speak in the presence of their enemies. He would send forth the gospel from their lips like a mighty trumpet blast of no uncertain sound for the salvation of Christ's redeemed people. That's the gospel that Paul received from Christ. That's the gospel that Paul committed into the hands of Timothy. It is the gospel that he instructed Timothy to commit to faithful men. And it is the gospel that has been so committed down through the ages of the church for the salvation of sinners and the gathering in of the elect of God because God's will is being done would the would the disciples be successful would the gospel be successful would Christ be successful in gathering that covenant people committed into his care yes most assuredly he would be 
Mark 13, 13 says, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, whether it's talking about the temporal enduring through all these beginnings of sorrows that the Lord spoke of, or the eternal salvation by a work of divine grace and power, it would be so the Lord would cause his people to persist. The perseverance of the saints was assured they would be saved. There's no doubt about it. John chapter 10 verse 28 says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. As the Lord and his disciples sat on the Mount of Olives, that night, looking towards Jerusalem with the sun setting behind the temple. There was much in what the Saviour said to trouble and affright his disciples, his followers. And undoubtedly there was a lot of trouble ahead. And none of them felt able or equipped for the challenge and the suffering yet to be endured. But if Christ promised salvation and provision and protection, that is enough to step out in faith, to stand for Christ, to stand for the Christ of Scripture, the doctrine of grace, the gospel of effectual salvation. They did then, and we shall do it now, by the grace of God and with his help. Amen. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us.